Welcome to the Find Your Voice, Change Your Life podcast with psychologist Dr. Doreen Downing. Listen in as Doreen interviews people who felt they didn't have a voice or who suffered extreme speaking anxiety. You'll hear stories about how they struggled to speak up, what they did to find their authentic voice, and the confidence they now feel to speak up and make an impact. If you want to get started right away to find your voice, download Doreen's free 7-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com. And now, here is Doreen. Hi, I'm Dr. Doreen Downing, host of the Find Your Voice, Change Your Life podcast. As a psychologist, I help people overcome their fear of speaking in public. But there's more than just speaking up in public. If we look at every conversation as a, as a way of speaking and, in fact, also being in public, because you, even if you're with one person, it's an in-public situation. So I invite guests to talk about what their sense of not having had a voice is and to reflect on that and to if there's any kind of underlying roots that we could get to, that's fine, because that's always uh, something that's curious to listeners is, well, how have other people suffered or struggled and how have they found their voice? So today I get to meet and interview a friend of mine, Michael Rose. And let me just read some of the bio that I have that will show you what a magnificent, accomplished human being he is. Dr. Michael Rust has had a lifelong interest in communication theory and has had an illustrious career in academia, specializing in psycholinguistics, in language teacher education, focusing on speaking and listening development, and in instructional design, concentrating on listening-based language courses. Though he has numerous publications in linguistics, Michael recently published his first novel, a memoir called The Journey Home, which is published under a pen named Gabriel Braun. And I'm going to say that again because I read it and I was actually blown away with the writing of it as well as there's some illustrations. And the name that you would need to look up is Gabriel Braun, B-R-O-N. So make sure you go find it because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a journey just to go along with Michael as he discovers some things about his parents and himself. So Michael is a great believer in the value of pivotal experiences in one's life and career. And he considers his first encounter with speaking circles. And that's some 20 years ago where Michael met me and Lee Blickstein. And he thinks that's one of his pivotal experiences, which transformed his view of public speaking and his view, oh, also writing. And he says he's forever grateful, which is thank you, Michael, forever grateful <laughs> for his encounter and for the doors it opened to more personal and more satisfying self-expression. And I think that's what we're talking about today is voice just isn't, you don't just get up on a stage and that's what we're talking about. It's self-expression anytime, anywhere. So, Michael, wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Yes. So, as I said, it's about self-expression. And when you think or reflect back 
Mm. What would you say might be a sense of memory, not having voice, uh, being having some difficulty expressing yourself? How early does that go back? Oh, wow. How how deep do you want to go? Here? I, uh, you know me, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> That's my business. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I, I, when I reflect on that, I, I think back to obviously childhood and growing up in a, um, as a baby boomer, post-World War II generation, uh, German, Catholic, strict family. And, you know, one of the concepts that comes out of at least my family and the, the families in my clan around me is this concept of comparative suffering, which is, what are you complaining about? You don't know what it was like during the war, you know, as a post-war uh, family. Um, and I think a lot of it is rooted into just be quiet because you have nothing to complain about, you know? So not that complaining is the only thing that kids do, but whenever any kind of discomfort or unfamiliarity or clumsiness came up, it was like, oh, just shut up. You know, you don't have it so bad. And that sort of spreads that concept of, you know, you don't have anything to complain about, so you don't have anything to say, you don't have anything to contribute. So it became a kind of comparative thing where you would say, is this worth talking about? Is this not worth talking about? Will I be heard if I say this? And so growing up in this kind of culture of you need to deserve to be heard. And, you know, that's one piece of it. And as I mentioned in my, my novel, which is really a personal memoir, is I discovered, you know, some of my family history is my father was in World War II and suffered tremendously, apparently, but he kept it all silent. And I, you know, wanted to learn more about him, and I didn't until, you know, quite late in his life. But I think his ethic and, you know, as the patriarch of the family, his ethic was you know, don't share your suffering with anybody. Let them move on from it. And I guess that's a very loving gesture if you think about it, right? As a parent, you you don't want your children to suffer, but it's a kind of a paradox. You know, they're suffering by imagining what you suffered, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there wasn't an openness, in other words, uh, in my family. And it wasn't until, I think, you know, I, I pursued an academic career. It wasn't until I was close to 40 years old that I had to really retrace those steps and figure out how, I hate to use the word toxic, you know, because it sounds as if my parents were dumping poison on me and they weren't, you know, it was just sort of the, the zeitgeist of the time that parents raised children uh, to be free of suffering or to be free of uh, difficulties. They wanted to make your children's life better, but at the same time, they weren't sharing the backstory, so to speak. And it took me quite a while to unravel that. And that did affect my um, my sense of voice, really, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've already said so much, and this is a point of view that I haven't heard yet on the podcast. So I look forward to continuing this sense of you know, how you compare yourself to others. And usually that comparative story comes later out, you know, like out in grammar school or high school peers, or in you're comparing yourself to other folks. But what you said is even earlier on, there wasn't a listening 
a listening to you, whatever it happened to be around and what seemed to be around complaining or just speaking up about anything. And that I think what I'm just really getting from you right now, it's the listening that helps you find your voice. Oh, absolutely. I, I think as a uh, a child who I, you know, at that time, I wouldn't conceptualize it or language it as I'm not being listened to. It was right. just something is not fitting here. But I learned to value listening and I became a very uh, close, I would call it code breaker. You know, I, when I would see the adults acting this way, I would say, oh, this means that they're not going to tell you that's what it means. But you can sort of figure out by their verbal and nonverbal behavior, this is what it means. And so I became a, an avid listener as a child, more or less, it's the, that's the only avenue of making sense of the world. If I wasn't going to be listened to, you know, in a detailed verbal sense, I had to develop a, a more of an observation listening perspective, which I think, you know, I think all of us who've had challenges as, as children or struggles or even trauma, ultimately, if we stay with that difficult experience, you know, it can, it can be actually what seeds our voice later on. What a great concept. Seeds yeah. our voice by looking back and finding, and it could even be in that difficulty. You just reminded me of what it was like when I was five years old and people were having a party. I didn't realize it was code breaking, but I love that line, that <laughs> idea. But people, my family was having a party and um, there's a lot of booze, you know, a lot of alcohol in those yes. years. Uh, I think it was in the 50s, early 50s. And I knew, Michael, I knew my father was leaving. And But everybody was laughing and having a good time. But he was divorcing my mom. You mean you believe that that was a pivotal moment where he was literally going to? Yeah. But I didn't know that till I looked back on it and realized mm -hmm. Gee, how did I get to be such a good, deep listener? I was doing it way back when, like you're talking about adults are acting in a certain way, but there isn't something that's, I'm listening, I'm hearing something else going on here, a party, but something really major is about to change my life. And nobody's talking about that. And so that idea of what you just said around code breaking observing being the observer and um, i i would say i was probably naturally intuitive also about yes, yeah. uh, you know tuning into right yeah what's happening around me in order to make sense of it yes yeah i i think i think there are i'm not a psychic or a clairvoyant by any means but i think there are vibrations and I mean, I've studied phonology and there are harmonics, you know, multiple levels of sound even that coexist. And you can learn to tune in to the different harmonics of sound to not necessarily comprehend it, but to tune in, as you were saying, to tune into it and feel there's some meaning here that needs to be heard. And I, I think as a listener, it, it, by choice or by by circumstance, you know, you learn to break the codes or you learn to see the harmonics and find meaning in ways that are being denied to you on the, on the normal plane. So to speak. Yes. Yeah. The layers and uh, 
I like what you just said too around the harmonics and the sound that there really is. Uh, in your studies, I think you're bringing something today that I again have not heard that with that those layers or those harmonics, uh, there is something that we're listening. We're listening all the time. We're animals, right? <laughs> yeah. And some people have listening to other layers probably more naturally, but I love the idea of being able to train our listening. And well, you know, one thing I, I learned in my my doctoral studies about phonology is we would, I mean, this sounds very morbid, but it's it's all standard procedure. You know, we hook people up to different electrodes and parts of the brain. And you can sort of study which areas of the brain are being activated when they're listening or when they're speaking or when they're performing some task. Mm -hmm. And the first part of the brain that lights up in listening is the amygdala, which is where emotion is processed. So we can somehow understand emotion before we understand words. You know, like you'll often laugh at a joke before the punchline comes because you're somehow hearing the emotion of the story mm -hmm. or you can start crying you know, before you get to the the point where X happens and the mm -hmm. floodgates open, you know, that you can, your emotional processing is the, is the first and most fundamental level of listening. And I think as a listener, you learn to tune into that and trust that. Maybe that's what intuition is. It's trusting the things you can't fully comprehend. Yes. And uh, you, since you're a scientist, <laughs> there's uh, neuroscientists uh, with Pittman and Carl that have written a book, uh, Calming Your Anxious Brain or something like Rewiring, Rewiring Your Anxious Brain. And they talk about the frontal lobe having a whole different neural you know, pathway than the amygdala that you just mentioned. And that how I integrated in my work is with anxiety anxiety mm. what you just said about you're going to feel it before maybe you even think it so that mm. oh i'm going to be going to give a speech is the amygdala is already firing <laughs> and it keeps on firing and it keeps on firing and the frontal says oh there's nothing to be afraid of yet uh, the amygdala seems to be the one who's activated in control yes. <laughs> as the last word so to speak right? uh, yeah oh yeah. well there's so much to discover here about voice and listening and speaking what else uh maybe you're uh, something about your own journey i always like to get personal well i i think one of the pivotal experiences for me was uh when i was i would Gosh, a long time ago, about five years into my serious academic career, uh, I was teaching graduate classes in uh, linguistics and psycholinguistics, and uh, we call applied linguistics, you know, for teaching languages, etc. And I had been sort of cruising along, you know, I had achieved this high level of uh, academic uh, prowess, you know, <laughs> and I was... I was comparing myself, and this is not comparative suffering, this is comparative achievement, you know, where uh -huh. I'm comparing myself to other, and it, as it turns out, mostly men on the faculty, you know, kind of pseudo father figures, if you will. And I was kind of measuring myself up to them. And by all external standards, I was doing quite well. 
you know, I was getting good reviews for my classes. I was publishing articles and, you know, I was doing the whole academic uh, gig correctly. And then there was one day, I remember it was about Thanksgiving-ish or something of, of that year, you know, the academic year starting in September. And I was at a social event and I suddenly just became dizzy. You know, and I had to, I, like, if I was talking to you now, I'd say, Doreen, I have to sit down. I mean, I literally thought I was going to fall over. Um, and that started, a, a, I mean, that was a red flag, obviously, that something is, is not right. I mean, I, I know that you can diagnose it uh, as a physician in multiple ways, mm -hmm. but it was clear to me that this was something psychological, that I was having trouble keeping my balance, literally. And that the um, the work I was doing in academia was coming from uh, this kind of compulsion to achieve. And even though I was delivering classes, as it were, you know, standing in front of the class and lecturing and performing, you know, I, I, one of your guests talked about the Rocket Man persona. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was Rocket Man. You know, I, when class started at six o'clock. To nine o'clock, I usually had these evening classes. You know, here comes Rocket Man, and I would buzz along for three hours and then collapse. And I was thinking that this is normal. And I guess just my psyche, my amygdala, my frontal lobes, the whole package just gave out and said, like, we can't do this anymore. We can't be Rocket Man anymore. And I, it was my first uh, realization that I needed to pursue some kind of psychological support or exploration, at least. And, you know, going back to my sort of German heritage, the idea of seeing a therapist would be considered verboten. You know, you, you don't do that. That's a sign of weakness right? <laughs> or, or even just vulnerability. I think the word vulnerability never was spoken, you know, as a. What's that? You know, uh, just something that is not part of the experience, right? That's, well, you know, it was just frowned upon. So I actually felt somewhat ashamed for seeking help because it was like, you know, if I mean, literally, you know, I'm a grown adult. If my father finds out, what's he going to say? You whispering. <laughs> right? I mean, that's how I felt at the time. But the, it there was a breakthrough on the very first session, you know, like within the first, when I realized, okay, this is for me to receive help, receive support, receive insight, receive clarity, you know. Uh, and the clarity that came in this very first session was the, the psychologist um, said, you know, she was recommended through a friend who I was able to confide in. You know, it was still very hush-hush. I mean, I, I envy people who are coming of age today because I think mental health and just mental duress is considered to be, you know, part and parcel of daily life and what you need to take care of. You know, it's as, it's as important as diet and exercise, right? But at that time, it was a bit taboo. Yeah. During that first session... You know, she was asking me, what do you think is bringing on this dizziness? And I started to describe this kind of compulsion to perform perfectly. And she said, I remember, I remember the words because it was a very odd phrasing. She said, it seems like you're being jerked around. You know, it's kind of idea of like you're a fish on the end of a 
this fishing pole and you don't know who the fishing pole is connected to. You know, you're just being, and she said, who, and I said, and I, I, I remember starting to cry, which again was not something German Catholic mm-hmm. post, <laughs> post-World War II men do, right? Um, and she said, who do you think is, I mean, what's, what's this? About? And I said, it's my father. My father's jerking me around, you know? And I mean, just verbalizing that, I felt shame because I know he's not a, he wasn't a bad person by any means, right? But this, and, and, and you know, the, I guess projection is a common uh, psychological concept, right? I was projecting something onto him, I believe, as well. But you were also interjecting into yourself because I think that's where the the message was inside of yourself. That's what you know. It seems like my interpretation. Yes, uh-huh. of his of his uh, uh-huh. of his persona or his take on the world. Yeah. And and I realized that you know I will never find my voice or my center or my satisfaction or my my mission really. If I have, I mean, thank you for that concept uh, with that kind of interjection of other people's voices. Yes. You know what I mean? I do. I I felt that was a transitional point. I mean, I wasn't, quote, cured. I don't even think I'm cured today. But I have, you know, I have a sense of how that journey needs to transform. You know, if I start to go down that path of I'm following other people's voices, or I'm trying to perform according to somebody's rocket man standards, or my own rocket man standards for that matter, um, it's going to lead to, at the very least, imbalance. And at the worst, you know, illness or craziness or despair, frustration, you know, just a whole package of bad experiences. So, that I think you know was a pivotal was a pivotal point in my career. Um, that you know performing and in in importing interjecting other voices and other directives wasn't going to work. I mean, I can pull it off for two or three hours at a time, but that's no way I felt to live a life. You know, just you know pumping yourself up to, for the performance collapsing and then doing it all over again the next night, you know, uh, sounds like a Broadway <laughs> show or something. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that that was an important, an important, uh, important experience. Wow. You've uh, already given us so much and it, I, we're going to have to have you back because I think you can unpack a lot of this, what goes on for people around not having a voice and what you've just said about, well, we've taken in other people's voices uh, from way, way back, or maybe even now. I had somebody on my podcast who said that she was in a corporation and they were uh, some kind of meeting and she uh, gave her opinion or spoke up and the boss came up to her afterwards and said, we don't say that kind of thing here. You know, so yeah, yeah, we. You are part (laughs) of the we, yes. Yes, and you know, you're going to be here. You got to put duct tape. Basically, I mean, didn't say that, but that whole sense of what you're saying is how we, where we measure where it's safe or where it's okay for ourselves or for our career, or um, just being more healthy as human beings is uh, where do we go for that 
So since we're near the end of time, darn it, can you can you say something about what is now most important for you around finding and expressing your voice? Well, I think now uh, what's important to me as a uh, a speaker or a teacher and as a writer is to is to slow down and say less and uh, mean what I say. And I think that slowing down process is very helpful for actually becoming more productive, kind of paradoxically, because there's more intention in what I say or what I write. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's an important thing to keep finding. And, and I do think what's important to me is realizing that you know, every act of expression, whether it's writing or speaking or conversing, um, it's a kind of a self-care concept, you know, and, you know, to just take more care with expression, mean more what I say, you know, think a little bit more, reflect more, uh, slow down more. Um, and as I transition more into doing you know, some of this fiction slash memoir type of writing, uh, which was my original intent back when I was uh, in college. You know, it's interesting that it's sort of coming full circle that I do feel that, I, you know, coming from a, vo a central voice that's my own original voice is, uh, is very important. You know, one of my writing teachers, Amy Tan, she's local in this area and be a lovely guest for you to have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, talks about, um, you know, the vo finding voice is the most important thing for a writer. You know, technique and blah, 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 blah. The same as you and Lee teach about speaking. The technique is all peripheral. You know, it's finding your voice. Uh, and that once you find it, even one time, and you lose it again, you find it again, you lose it. But you have confidence that you can come back. You know, sometimes for some people, as little as just a few seconds, they can reclaim their voice. But to know that it's there mm -hmm. is a confidence builder and that you can come back and you, you can find it. And then not to begin until you have it. You know, no reason to substitute someone else's voice just to fill the time, you know. So I, I think that that is sort of where I am now with my, with my work, with my, uh, my thinking, my writing. Yeah, both uh, knowing that there's an inner sense of self that has a voice, but also having journeyed there enough that you the the freeway <laughs> it's no longer a rough road, rough terrain. But that you if you go keep going back, keep going back, then then it becomes just like a a slide. Ooh, there I am, yeah, one breath. It feels good to go down that slide and, and come mm -hmm. back. You know, so. Well, it just made me feel like that slide. And then uh, your whole, uh, your title of your book, uh, Journey, the, the Journey Home, you know, it's just like, oh, I just got back inside of myself. That's my home. Yes, yes. Well, I appreciate the kind words you said about, about the book. I mean, to me, it, it, uh, it was gratifying to be able to finally complete that story and i i think you know i had the the elements of it in me for many years 
Yeah. And then, and I think a lot of my work, other, uh, a lot of our work is we have the elements, but we don't have the voicing for it. You know? mm-hmm. And somehow during the early part of 2020, uh, I guess with all that forced lockdown time, I was able to, you know, take some writing classes online, uh, like from Amy Tan and Margaret Atwood, even David Sedaris, the comedian, you know, uh, and just learn ways of telling your story that are that are true to the true to yourself. And uh, that was very gratifying to be able to kind of pull these elements together and tell it as a journey it's it's about me i mean it's a my own journey to that maybe even the journey to the home home voice you know that you you're finally able to tell your story uh, and feel that it's worth hearing worth being heard well that's full circle (laughs) from the beginning of our talk today. And I guess what I'm leaving with right now is what you just said about truth and that there's a sense of truth that then you know you're you're either closer or you are there when you have a sense of truth and the voice comes from truth. Mm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for joining me today. All right. Thank you, Doreen. Thank you for being with us today for this episode of Find Your Voice, Change Your Life. Each person Doreen interviews shares what has helped them find their voice. You can learn from these guests and find your voice so you can be confident to speak up and speak out. And remember to download Doreen's free seven-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll return next time. Until then, goodbye for now.